I'm gonna have to ask D. He said that getting through Leviticus has been has been a slog. <laughs> oh, the laws, all the things, where your whole life is basically a sin. Yeah. For sure. Well, is that what it says in Leviticus? I think. Girl, Leviticus. I just know because I went to Catholic school, right? So I just know the the greatest hits, you know. <laughs> just know the greatest hits of the Bible. <laughs> Not the greatest hit. These were God's best singles. Uh. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Alyssa. My pronouns are she, her, hers, elle. And I'm sorry about my voice. I actually just got a COVID test on Wednesday. It came back negative, so it is not COVID. I just have some kind of an allergy situation. Well, I feel better soon. I do not have allergies, thankfully. Cross my cross my <laughs> heart. Um, but I hear you, L. Um, I will choose not to translate (laughs) my pronouns but y'all i'm brendan and my pronouns are she her hers welcome to the zora's daughters podcast where we define real world issues and empower our listeners to join in on academic and anthropological conversations with a black feminist lens today we will be talking about religion diaspora and the many ways black christian men got black women all the way fucked up all the way fucked up (laughs) Yes, but before we get started, we want to give a huge thank you to Tina, Hey Girl, and Sophie for donating to the podcast. Your support is invaluable. You can donate by visiting our website, zorasdaughters.com, or through the link bit.ly slash support ZDP on our Instagram. And of course, in these challenging times, we want you to put you and yours first. So we equally love non-monetary support, and that can look like a rating and review on Apple and Stitcher podcasts, following us on social media at Zora's Daughters on Instagram and Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. Or it can just be sharing your podcast with your friends, family, colleagues, people that you want to learn a little something about black feminism because apparently yeah. people don't know what it's like to be they, a black woman out here. They don't. And whew, they need to listen. They need to listen. Sit down and listen. <laughs> so we have a great episode planned, I think, today. Um, so I think we should just jump right into it. But we're going to start with our with our new little game that we have, our fun defund <laughs> reform <laughs> Abolish. Abolish. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Uh, um, <laughs> so I've got I've got what I think is a good one for Brendan today. Yes, you do. And I have I'm such a lame at this shit, y'all. I honestly It'll come. It'll come. It's it'll come hard. Okay, so <laughs> today, Brendan. Hmm. Which would you defund? Which would you deform? And which would you abolish between the terms black and brown? Mm. B-I-P-O-C. That's the black, indigenous, and people of color. Or diverse. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm closing my eyes because I'm really, I really had to think about this. Um, Yo... This is difficult because I 
truly detest all of these ways to describe people. But I feel like, okay, if I'm going to reform one, if one is the most salvageable, I'm going to reform black and brown. I don't, I don't really have much of an explanation. I'm just going to reform that one. I think that one is the most <laughs> keepable one. I think what makes it difficult, okay, and I guess defund whoever said BIPOC was a thing. Just, <laughs> I am like, yo, wait, because it's confusing, right? So like me and my friends, we had conversations about this because we're all nerds. We're like, does this mean black and indigenous and people of color or does it mean black people indigenous. of color who right and mm-hmm. then that's it's like but then people use it as a descriptor to describe a person and then you're like wait what <laughs> like so-and-so is a bipoc wait how how is a, how is somebody a bipoc unless you are indeed a black indigenous person of color you cannot be one person cannot be a bipoc so but people <laughs> Like people use it in that way. And it just, I don't know, for me, the grammarian in me is always like, what is happening? And also just the collapse of all these different forms of experience into an acronym just also just confuses me. So I'm, I think though, between that and diverse, because when people say, oh, you're a diverse person with diverse experiences, like, what does that mean? Uh, Sis, please explain. Um, So... I think that one's got to go. Diverse is abolished for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm almost with you there. I'm definitely with you on diverse. I think that definitely needs to be abolished. It's just another way for white people to avoid saying black. Mm-hmm. Um, now, black and brown, I think black and brown can be defunded. Okay. Yeah, I think black and brown can be defunded. I like it. I use it. I think it's okay. It's just, it's a shorthand. Mm-hmm. And shorthands never really get at what we mean. But black is in there. And then with BIPOC. <laughs> I just, I just feel like BIPOC. I don't even know how to say it. I said BIPOC. Um, <laughs> with BIPOC. So I was like, did, are we talking about bi people? I also was like, yeah, is it there's bi people of color? Okay. Uh, people, people, people will be confused. <laughs> I think that BIPOC can be reformed okay. because I think that it centers Black and Indigenous people, or at least it puts them up front. Mm-hmm. The problem with it is that it ends up, I think people of color itself, that term is a problem because then you end up having this like debate about who is a POC. Yes. So who gets, I mean, who gets (laughs) there's, and then there's, and then the other thing about it actually is that it doesn't, I don't know. I don't know. It just don't be doing it. Like, because like someone, some, so sorry. So some people write like non BIPOC and I'm like, just say white. white. And then I have a problem with, you know what? I should have put non white on here. Cause I have a problem with that one too. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I just like that it puts up front Black and Indigenous. Okay, I can get with that. Because we can't really be collapsed into POC. We can Because can't. our experiences are so different. So, yeah, no. and But also, when I think about POC, like, I think about, are we including people 
of Asian descent, from my East Asian descent in POC, who are not mm-hmm. necessarily underrepresented in middle and upper class situations. Like, are we talking, like, when we say mm-hmm. POC, what does that mean? I also don't know who is a brown person. I do use black and brown, but I also am confused about who qualifies as brown. I like white, Latinx people, also brown. Like, mm. I don't know. So I that's why, I don't know, all of them, I'm like, that's one of the conundrums about using a language that is not truly yours, right? You don't really have words for for all these differences. And that's part, I don't know, that's part of the violence of having to use English to mm-hmm. even have this conversation. Um, but I got one for you that's much more lame, I feel like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and more so in line, I think, with like what we're talking about today, just with the themes, you know, of religion, etc. So defund, reform, and abolish virtue, femininity, or purity. Okay. I'm going to abolish purity Mm. because I think that is predicated on, or not predicated in, but on, but its opposite is impurity. So if someone is pure, then someone has to be impure. Mm -hmm. And I don't like the idea of a person being impure. What is that? What does that even mean? I will reform virtue mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think that virtue doesn't always have to apply to the woman, the virtuous woman, and apply in a, in a biblical sense. I think that it can you know, be another word for someone who is ethical and and thinks about things and believes and acts in ways that are beneficial to others and helpful to others. So I think that we can mm. we can do a little bit of that. And then I'll defund femininity. I think that we need to stop putting so much of an emphasis on femininity. But some people enjoy embodying that and embodying what it means to be feminine. So I don't think we need to throw it all the way out the window. Yeah. Okay. I think, I don't think I disagree with you. I feel like, well, we'll get into it later. My feelings Mm -hmm. around purity and virtue. As someone who is read as femme and who identifies as, you know, femme, um, for sure, femininity can be troubled. But yeah, especially when it comes to Black women, you know, femininity is a, is a category for those of us who choose to, you know, be femme and, you know, exist in femininity. It, it really matters to us to have access to that, I feel like, especially mm-hmm. um, especially because we are denied like mainstream forms of femininity, honestly, um, or are often defined in opposition to like our bodies, especially, mm-hmm. right? Like. The fact that I have broad shoulders is like not a feminine thing. What? Right? What broad shoulders? I have broad shoulders. I be hiding it in my clothes, but I have broad shoulders. <sighs> I am uh, a really. I don't know who told you that. 
I used to be a linebacker, so you know, don't 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 rob me of my don't rob me don't rob me of my. The only indignity. time you had broad shoulders were when you were wearing the shoulder pads. Get out of here! <laughs> oh yes, I used to do like little football stuff back in the day. Um, okay, powder puff. I don't know. Do they do that in Canada where they have like girls football teams? Not as far as I know. No. I mean, I'm sure it exists, but I've never come across it. But if I could have played football, I would have chosen that maybe over rugby. Rugby sounds dangerous. Mm -mm. (laughs) All right. So this is this was fun. I hope uh, it'll spark some conversations off the podcast with some folks who are listening. So let's make our way to our first segment. What's the word? So, Brendan. What's the word for today? Okay. The word for today is diaspora. 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 <laughs> it refers to any group of people who have dispersed around the world who have particular geographic origins. So this term actually comes from a Greek word meaning I scatter or I spread about and was used to describe citizens in ancient Greece who colonized other lands for immigration. Mm -hmm. And so then, of course, there was a kind of progression in the meaning of the word from this colonization to a more religious meaning. And that happened during the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And so this is considered the first mention of diaspora, the use of the actual word diaspora, Mm. and it's as a result of exile. So in Deuteronomy, it speaks of the dispersions of all kingdoms of earth and Psalms, where the Lord gathered all outcasts of Israel in Jerusalem. Not Deuteronomy. Mm. (laughs) Not Deuteronomy. That's like- I'm happy I said that right. Deuteronomy, least favorite book in the Bible. All my church kids, we all know we got our least favorite book. Uh, Deuteronomy was was mine for sure. I'm gonna have to ask D. He said that getting through Leviticus has been has been a slog. Oh, the laws, all the things where your whole life is basically a sin. Yeah, for sure. Oh, is that what it says in Leviticus? I think, girl. Leviticus. I just know because I went to Catholic school, right? So I just know the. The greatest hits, you know. <laughs> Just know the greatest hits of the Bible. <laughs> Not the greatest hits. These were God's best singles. Uh. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> so I was also, lo- I was looking through the Oxford English Dictionary online. And so the first usage of the word diaspora in English, at least from what I saw, that's what I understood from this reading, is that it was in 1694. And it was used to referred to the Jewish diaspora. Mm. And so then in the 18th century, it was kind of expanded into this concept of doing diaspora work. So that was more like what we would call missionary work. So church leaders traveling to evangelize in foreign countries. So it was kind of a return to its Greek origins Mm. in a certain sense. And then in the dictionary, it kind of shows that like when diaspora arrives at its current usage, that is like, referring to any population that's displaced or away from an indigenous or, or established homeland, that tend, that seemed to happen in like the mid to late 1800s. That's really yeah. interesting. I consider myself to be 
part of this African diaspora in a sense. Um, but I never, I never really, it's so interesting though, how it's like, how these meetings come back to themselves, like how it literally was about mm-hmm. colonization. And now it's part of an African, as I see myself as an African displaced from a homeland, right? Like mm-hmm. the very meaning in the word that I used to describe myself is also tied to that. Yeah. Also, so fascinating. Like, do you see yourself as part of African diaspora? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely imagine myself as part of, I don't even imagine. I am part of the African diaspora. But as I was thinking about this episode, I was like, am I part of a, of a Jamaican diaspora? Because I'm not really mm-hmm. sure that I would categorize Jamaicans as part, as part of a diaspora or as a diaspora. Because even though we're totally a community, and I'm sure a lot of people will completely disagree with me, but I think in a way I was kind of like unconsciously theorizing this, right? Like yeah. what is the difference between a diaspora and a migrant community? Because mm-hmm. diaspora carries this meaning of displacement. And, you know, I'm, I'm about like, I'm this word nerd <laughs> now. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm like, okay, what does diaspora mean? Or what does displacement mean? Where does it come from? I'm thinking about it as moving, but... It also in science is like when one object forces a liquid out of its place or something. Right. Like so you, know, you put law. a rock in a, hmm? Yeah, Newton's law. Yeah. <laughs> so you put, you put a rock in a, in a glass of water and it's going to displace. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think of displacement as requiring a kind of external force. And so Jamaicans weren't necessarily forced out of their homeland although certainly pushed by social, political, and economic factors, but there's an involuntariness to diaspora for me. Yeah, um, I agree. I think of diaspora as forced movement, and I was really thinking about that as you were talking, was for me myself, consider myself to be a Black American person, but my great-grandfather did immigrate here from the Bahamas, and I remember sitting... I think it was with Jafari Allen at a dinner and I was telling him, you know, oh, I'm from South Carolina, but on my mother's side, they're Bahamian, but we don't really practice any type of association with the Bahamas. Like, I really wish I knew more about the culture or really, I would feel like a fraud if I was sitting on here calling myself Bahamian. Um, But he was explaining to me like, oh, actually Bahamians were among the Caribbean people who were who assimilated the fastest. So after like one or two generations, they would call themselves and consider themselves to be just like descendants of enslaved folks in the same way that Black Americans hmm. um, who had lived here for generations would. And so he was like, I don't really know what's behind that, but I just thought I would offer that to you. And I was like, oh yeah, like I could see that. Like my great grandfather came, he married uh, this Black indigenous woman and that was that was that like we grew up as mm-hmm. like poor black southern people in in south in the middle of nowhere south carolina at least my mom and her mm-hmm. her brother and her sister and then i'm in a city that some people still would consider the middle of nowhere but you know <laughs> it's cool it's the capital of the state so boom mm-hmm. but anyways in in 1991 to bring us back to what we're talking about. In 1991, mm-hmm. political scientist William Safran sought out six characteristics to distinguish a diaspora group from a migrant community. So, here they are. 
There must be a myth or collective memory of the homeland, that homeland is their true home, right? Three, that they are committed to the restoration or maintenance of that homeland and that homeland shapes their identity. So he also says that because of the forcible uprooting of black Africans from their homeland and because a specific homeland cannot be restored, this homeland myth becomes supporting and identifying with pan-African liberation movements. So, I mean, I could see that though. That I could see. It's in- it's thought-provoking for sure. Like, mm-hmm. And I think Sadia Hartman in, in her work, Lose Your Mother, definitely circles around this idea of homeland and talks mm-hmm. about like, what does it mean to return? And she she beautifully writes about coming back to Ghana, coming even me saying coming back, right? Going to Ghana mm-hmm. and walking through the slave castles and being called a stranger by Ghanaians. When I was in Ghana though, it was so interesting because people assumed that I was Ghanaian. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they would like call me sister or like, as long as I didn't open my mouth, people just assumed I was Ghanaian or like when we were in the marketplace, my partner and I would be trying to barter and like my partner is lighter than me. Mm -hmm. And so they would, they would like not really take my partner seriously, but I was, but I would be like, no, they would just, (laughs) they would take it seriously and move on. And I was like, I don't know. Is it because I look Ghanaian, but also I don't. I was like, I don't know what that is, but I definitely felt an identity, um, like a connection to a homeland when I visited. But I could also feel a distance because it was like, mm-hmm. okay, like I, this could be my home, but I don't know. Um, yeah. And even being there with my partner, and we couldn't be like we couldn't show affection towards each other in public because you know homosexuality is illegal there, and so it's just like. Oh, now I can't even, this can't really be home because I can't even bring my whole self here. Right. Um, so what is that? Where does that leave me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the, I want to say like contradiction or difficulty mm-hmm. of being a Black American, being African American. Um, and is something that differs being, I mean, and there, there are also Black Canadians who are the descendants of slaves in Canada and the U.S. So I should add that in there as well. And I think that's something that differs as someone who is the, ch- the child of immigrants. So like for me, the myth of my homeland is Jamaica. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I don't necessarily think of it as my true home. I don't know. I'm kind of caught betwixt in between for some reason although for my mom for example and that generation like Jamaica is their true home right mm-hmm. like my mom has lived in Canada for twice as long as she's lived in Jamaica at least and she never ceases to tell me about how things are back home and you know that talking about Jamaica all the time and I'm like <laughs> mom you don't know how kids behave in Jamaica <laughs> anymore you don't know how they behave back home <laughs> and I'm like <laughs> I'm like, you have lived in Canada longer, so please assimilate how you treat me. <laughs> assimilate how you treat your children. <laughs> and just like, let me be an adult, you know, allow me, just allow me. <laughs> <laughs> but William Safran, he also talks about the way that homeland, homeland shapes your identity. And so in many ways, Jamaica shapes mine. And I was trying to think of a percentage, like, 
is it half and half? Mm. Is it 60-40? And I haven't quite come to a conclusion on, on that. I don't know. It's, it's hard to things. say. Yeah, it's like it's one of those things that it depends where I am, right? Like if I'm, can- if I'm in Canada and someone's like, oh, where are you from? I'm probably going to say Jamaica first. Whereas mm. that's like a really offensive question to ask, <laughs> ask a Black American, right? And also like the intonation and the person, it depends, like that's also going to make a difference as to whether or not I'm going to feel offended by that question. Or, you know, people will be like, oh, where you're, where's your family from or something like that. And I'm not always offended by it. But if I'm traveling or something like that and someone's like, oh, where are you from? I'm going to say I'm Canadian. And on this podcast, I'm always like, oh, I'm Canadian. I don't know anything about this. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's somewhere, I'm so, I feel like it's somewhere in between. So just in the end, I think I'm going to say like, I'm not going to knock anyone who wants to say that they're in a diaspora, that they're diasporic because words evolve, they change their meaning. And even now, like, the idea of this homeland, it doesn't have to be physical or material. It can be mm-hmm. conceptual. So there are like religious diasporas and linguistic diasporas. People talk about, you know, the global Francophone community, the Francophonie it's called, and oh. even digital diasporas. And I'm like, I'm not, sure, I'm not so sure about the digital diaspora. I'd kind of want to call it digital transnationalism, but I haven't read the digital diaspora work, so... Oh, I'm not going yeah. to open up that can of worms, worms too much. Yeah, I feel like a dinosaur. I was like, digital <laughs> diaspora? I've never heard that before. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I know about Bianca Williams' emotional transnationalism, so I'm interested to hear about uh, digital. I have to do some digging. I'm going to do some digging. Mm-hmm. I get out of my black american hegemonic blackness <laughs> zone <laughs> and uh, you know think about things but Is that another subtweet <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i can't see my face but yeah it probably was and that's that on that yeah so so here's some so in researching this episode as <laughs> as we do i learned some very interesting facts and so one of the things i learned is that the largest diaspora group in the U.S. is German. Bum, bum, bum. And so this actually follows in Canada as well. So after Chinese and Punjabi, Spanish and German are the most common immigrant languages. And so most of the Germans are in their 50s and seven, like 50s to 70s. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know that many, but I probably know more so their children. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so in the U.S., more than 48 million people have roots in Germany, although few are foreign-born. So... Apparently, allegedly, so many were immigrating to the U.S. that Benjamin Franklin said they're swarthy folk. And so swarthy means dark skinned. (laughs) So there's swarthy folk who would never adopt our language or customs any more than they can acquire our complexion. Mm, It's interesting, interesting, right? It's like this, you know, we were talking about the creation of the category of black and I think that this is like another example of how people deemed inferior racialized as darker skinned. So the marginalization of darker skinned people, it's not inherent. It's like a position that non-Black people can move in and out of. Mm-hmm. And so here, here again becomes the problem with like POC and things like that. But, yes. you know, anyways, German Americans, Germans fully subsumed into whiteness. But it's interesting that there's this narrative out there of like, Mexicans and Asians taking over, but the Migration Policy Institute has reported that the largest diaspora groups 
in the U.S. are German and Irish. So mm. their whiteness exempts them from being labeled, you know, the swarthy peril or something like that. Right. So it's like these these blackenings of folks, right? And like, I'm blackening. I don't know if that's a word. I don't know. Somebody's going to be like, that's not a word. But like blackening for sure of folks to marginalize them. And then when it's like necessary for them to be seen as white so they could be incorporated into this group of folks that have power and to help whiteness maintain its power, mm-hmm. then that blackening is kind of shipped away. Uh, so that is so... I think we're going to see more of that um, as we move forward, especially in the season that we're in. Like, there are going to be some groups that are called into definitions of white uh, and some groups that are going to be pushed out as as this election season for sure moves forward. It's going to be fascinating to see how that happens because we're, like, living through that in real time. And I think particularly... Mm-hmm. What's going to happen to this category of um, Hispanic and Latinx as people, as we see white supremacist groups like gain power? I, I'm interested to see what's going to happen with that ethnic category. Mm-hmm. But we actually were not even going to talk about diaspora today, y'all. Like I know. <laughs> we were going to talk about <laughs> And y'all can tell us, y'all can just let us know if we made the right decision (laughs) about that. So (laughs) syncretism is like the blending of religious practices and schools of thought to create a new belief system. And so because of my own like intellectual background, I actually thought that syncretism really only related to these African diaspora religions. So I first came across the word learning about Haitian voodoo in in a Caribbean history class. And then all of these religions like Cuban Santeria, Brazilian Candomblé, Rastafari, and Obia in Jamaica. Although my mom would be like, don't, don't you ever call Obia a religion. <laughs> mm. but, but also hoodoo, these are syncretisms, right? And so I, I find them really interesting because Haitian voodoo is specifically one that's so indicative of like Black fugitivity, these mm. Black folks kind of expressing a desire for escape, escape and transgression. So the Loa, they're Yoruba gods, but they also have counterparts that are Roman Catholic saints. And so it was just like, this is, this is quintessential smuggle operation, as, <laughs> as our professor Audra Simpson would say. She loves a good smuggle operation. Yes, yeah, like... <laughs> Black folks were like, okay, sure, we'll bring about your cute little, you know, saint, whatever. And but we're gonna have our our gods here as well. Like we we understand that religion doesn't necessarily have to be an either or, right? And that was like part of the white supremacist Christian violence was to kind of demonize especially um these indigenous religions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I was introduced to syncretism in theory class my first year, and we read Melville Herskovitz. Oh, I always stumble over his name. Um, The Myth of the Negro Past, which actually Zora Neale Hurston, she contributed to part of this work. Um, And he and a team of anthropologists, mostly Black, um, were trying to establish that Black people, in fact, do have a culture because part of the racist myth at that time was that, you know, Negroes did not have a past. They did not have a culture. So how can we really consider them to be human? And so Mm -hmm. part of the project was to establish them as peoples uh, with a culture. And part of the way they did this was like studying the connections between African 
religions, which were then described as um, primitive, quote unquote, or, you know, African indigenous religions and the offshoots in different parts of the African diaspora. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Herskovitz, he kind of says that African-Americans, especially in the continental U.S. Uh, specifically, are the most watered down. Like as far as mm. a, a scale for who retained the most Africanness and who retained the least uh, U.S. African-American folks retain the least amount of Africanness, whereas mm. Black folks in the Caribbean and in South America, um, namely Suriname, were in Brazil, were the purest. But you mm. could still see elements of African religion in everybody's worship services. And he based yeah. he based this on on you know two weeks of ethnographic study in Haiti. But you know, oh, you know, two weeks. Yeah, you know, so he, you know, of hmm. course, ethnography looked different back then, but yes, the talk of of like the scaling of Africanness and 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 of course, it's pointing to authenticity, right? So then it's like, well, are you truly actually descended from African folks if you have not kept all of these, you know, forms of Africanness as evidence through religion and spirituality? But I feel like that is. Of course, a conversation that we could have, we should mm-hmm. have, um, among like people, those of us who are, you know, African descendant, like the ways that we demonize certain religions or certain uh, spiritual beliefs because of their association with the continent, and it's like mm-hmm. nothing about Africa is unholy. Yeah, I mean, you sent you sent me that tweet by Penny Lee like around last week, and so this person wrote. African spirituality is not witchcraft. It's pretentious and arrogant to think that God only revealed himself to the white man. Mm. Just because you refuse to understand it doesn't mean it's evil. And so the responses to that were very interesting. Mm-hmm. There, was, there, was a, there was some people who were saying, yes, that might be true. Some people were saying, no, it's, that's devil worship. It was, there was an interesting conversation. Maybe we can get into that. Yeah, it's like, do y'all want to limit God to Europe and to white folks when they was like, when they yeah, are I mean, someone, someone even yeah. said like, God has made it plain he's not an African spiritualism. So I'm, I'm confused. How did he make that plain? What? Wait, which one of God's singles did he, did he drop the line? <laughs> did he drop the line? Oh, I'm not an African spiritualist. I, I he said, like, also African spiritists do not claim to be of God slash Christianity. So I'm not sure why people want the two so badly to connect. But me not saying something's not evil doesn't mean I'm trying to connect it to Christianity. I'm just saying it's not evil. Mm-hmm. I think I think that there's a really interesting tension here that we're kind of mm-hmm. that we're coming up against, which is, you know, how do you bring these two things together? How do you bring together this Africanness and religiosity? And so I think that brings us really nicely into what we're reading today. So Brendan, what are we reading today? So we are reading Transcendent Kingdom by Yah Jassy. And just for transparency, uh, we requested and were given copies of Transcendent Kingdom specifically for this episode from the publisher, but all of the opinions are our own and we have not been reviewed or influenced by the publisher in any way. All we did was get a book, we read it, 
And we're here to talk to y'all about it today. Yeah. And this is definitely your time to shine. (laughs) As I was reading it, I was just like, wow, this, this, Brendan, this, this is like resonating. I think. (laughs) Triggered. (laughs) Triggered. All right. So we'll get into that. But first a little bit about Yajasi. She's a Ghanaian American novelist whose debut novel, Homegoing, was awarded the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Award for the Best First Book, Ooh. the Penn Hemingway Award for the First Book of Fiction, the National Book Foundation's Five Under 35 Honors, and that was actually chosen by ta Coates, and mm. the American Book Award. Whew, she's accomplished. Yes. So she was born in Mampong, Ghana. She's the daughter of a professor of French and a nurse. Her family moved to the U.S. in 1991 when her father was completing his Ph.D., And so they also lived in Illinois and Tennessee. And from the age of 10, Jossie was raised in Huntsville, Alabama. And so I just say all of that because it actually is, it resonates a lot with what happens in the book. And so Mm -hmm. in some ways it seems somewhat autobiographical. Yes. And so she earned a Bachelor of Arts in English at Stanford and a Master of Fine Arts from the Iowa White Writers Workshop. And I've, I've only heard of that because of girls the tv show (laughs) but from what i understand it is a very prestigious creative writing program at the university of iowa well clap clap snap snap um (laughs) doing the thing transcendent kingdom which was released in september 2020 is i would say it is a very provoking novel about a young woman whose name is Gifty. She is a sixth year PhD candidate in neuroscience at Stanford University School of Medicine. Mm, girl, that even that part was triggering. I was like, ooh, <laughs> I used to want to do medicine too. Um, but she's not, a, she's not studying to be a doctor. She's getting a PhD. But yeah, she studies reward-seeking behavior in mice and the neural circuits of depression and addiction. Her brother... Nana was a gifted high school athlete who died of a heroin overdose after an ankle injury left him hooked on Oxycontin. So her suicidal mother is living in her bed, and that's where we start. And Gifty is determined to discover the scientific basis for the suffering she sees all around her. But even as she turns to the hard sciences to unlock the mystery of her family's losses, she finds herself hungering for her childhood faith and grappling with the event evangelical church in which she was raised whose promise of salvation remains as tantalizing as it is elusive so i just obviously read that off of the book jacket but (laughs) it does i thought would provide a really good glimpse into like where we hop in on this story so yeah like before we hop in though i do want to say that aesthetically the cover the book jacket i'm just happy with it because it suits the aesthetic of my my apartment as you may know black pink and gold these are my accent colors oh so i don't know where i'm gonna put this i want to put this book like somewhere to bring my bookshelf together <laughs> oh well i'm i have not thought that deep <laughs> that, that's actually not deep that's probably the most superficial <laughs> part of the book <laughs> Uh, okay so what i did want to say is that there's this scene it's very early on her mom has just arrived at her home and she's upset she's at work and so she goes to the bathroom and she's like get a hold of yourself Mm. and she says that she felt like a cliche doing this like looking in the mirror she said it was like i was reenacting a scene from a movie so i started to feel like i didn't have a self to get a hold of 
or rather that I had a million selves, too many to gather. Mm. And I just love that because it made me think about the fracturing of the self mm. and the way Black women, we hold these multiple selves and experiences because there are so few places that we can be our full selves. Mm. And at the same time, we're expected to be everything to everyone. We're the race educator, the advocate for Black men, the perfect daughter, perfect mother, diversity and inclusion expert, you know, all of these kinds of things in all these different places. And so I just really saw that theme in this book. You know, she's always trying to be what it is that she needs to be to others. So she's her mom's rock. She's the best in her lab, all of these kinds of things. But there's nowhere where she brings all of these selves into one. Yeah. I mean, until you get to the end and it's like a magical thing um, and she's able to bring herself together for, you know, her future with her partner. But yeah, that was really just like thought provoking for me because I thought about the ways growing up. So I grew up in a a Protestant church that was non-denominational, but it was actually a lot like the church um, that Gifty in the book is at. It's, it's much closer to like a Pentecostal, speaking in tongues, holy roller, mm-hmm. shouting, but black, very, very black church. Um, mm-hmm. And I just remember getting visions of like my pastor and other ministers telling us, to leave those broken pieces for God or Jesus to put Mm. back together again. So it's like, it's not even this ability really for you yourself to pull yourself back together. It's like, this is something that God is supposed to do. And like my pastor would talk about how she allowed God to like take her imperfect flesh and make it whole again and perfect it. Mm. Um, And as someone, I I don't know if you knew this, Alyssa, but like I went to seminary school when I was a teenager. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I went to seminary. Um, And part of that was because I really wanted, I was really wanting to be accepted at the church that I was at. There were a lot of labels put on me, um, Mm -hmm. a Jezebel label and like, you know, and people believed that I was possessed with demons. Um, And so I just really wanted to demonstrate that I was not possessed. And so I went and so did seminary school and and I learned a lot about these roots uh, of Protestant religion so a lot of these offshoots of Protestant religion like uh, Pentecostalism and et cetera et cetera all really are rooted in a Calvinist or Lutheran belief that we are fundamentally broken and that we cannot be complete without God mm-hmm. so it's it's different from Catholicism, where Catholicism, there's kind of like this intermediary, which is the priest that you speak to and the priest intercedes on your behalf. But for Protestants, our intercessory, our intercessor is Jesus that we have a personal relationship with, but we're never actually whole Mm. um, without having Jesus in our lives. And so thinking about that and how I really internalize that. And like now as I've grown up and lost my identity as a Christian, for sure. Um, looking back on young me and seeing how really holding on to that with such like zealous fervor really left me feeling broken and incomplete. Um, and how I am working towards wholeness and knowing that like, I had to let go of those like least beliefs about my fundamental brokenness. I had to like <laughs> let that go. But what you're saying is so true. We are, we do 
kind of become everything for everybody and it's really against the grain like for us to put ourselves first or to Mm -hmm. pursue a wholeness even though we need a wholeness in order to survive so yeah that's Mm. i'm shook i'm shook girl i'm shook i think it's really interesting that we're coming at it from these two different understandings as well like i i hadn't put that put that together from the religious side but i was definitely thinking about it as just like the way that I walk in the world. And mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. So, I mean, does she ever really, we're not going to, we're not going to ruin it, but I wonder if she ever really does achieve wholeness because there was, you know, you pointed this out when we were talking beforehand, just that, you know, there was no black person that knew her fully and how could she know herself fully gifty? I'm talking about how could gifty know herself fully without a black person or you know, being in community with other black folks, I, it was, it was interesting. And so, yeah, like I, I mean, I guess we could just like talk about it here, but I really thought about this as like, one of the problems, one of the problems I have with the book, I'm going to say that, please. (laughs) It was Frail Witten, but like one of the things that was really puzzling to me growing up in the South I'm like, yo, churches are so segregated in the South. Like, Mm. it is very rare that you have churches that have, like, interracial congregations. And so I was just like, this is fascinating that her mother plants them in a white church in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And, like, Alabama is the South-South. Like, I'm from South Carolina. I'd be like, oh, no, Alabama. I'm not even (laughs) trying to, like, go there. And so it's like, okay, I'm sure there were plenty of black churches to choose from. So what was it that made this white church better than the rest? Especially mm-hmm. considering like the racist violence that the mother experiences, her children experience in the church. Yeah. Um, and so it made me think about like these kind of these diaspora wars that people talk about on Twitter, which are these like regional divisions among African and African descendant people. I was just like, yo, was a black church not good enough for Gifty's mom? Like, was it, was there something superior in, in going, attending this white church with this pastor who could never actually really connect with you? And, you know, and they also lived in like a white neighborhood, right? So like, what, mm-hmm. was there like a black neighborhood that was not good enough? Cause there are black people in Huntsville, Alabama, like hands down, <laughs> you know, it's Alabama. There are going to be black people around, but uh, Yasi does not really talk about or does not write about how Gifty's mother spoke about Black American people. So you kind of, it's like this question mark, right? Of like, mm-hmm. what was even the upbringing around interactions with Black American people? But it, I don't know. It, yeah. I, I got a sense that there was some internalized anti-Blackness running through the household. Yeah, It's like this undercurrent, but it's never really addressed mm-hmm. by Jossie. But I do have some, I do have some questions, questions about, you know, what, how Gifty's mother imagined herself mm-hmm. within this, like the U.S. society. I think it's kind of what you were saying, like her going to a white church and being a part of this church maybe made her superior. But I think it also speaks to this like black immigrant narrative where these these stereotypes about like, well, we pulled up our bootstraps and, you know, these immigrant communities are doing, you know, far better than African-Americans. It's just like another way to denigrate African-Americans. I mean, there's a lot of, (laughs) 
a lot of politics around that. I would say in response to what you're saying about how Gifty's mother saw herself, I feel like in page 27 was a really clear way that a lot of like black understanding, well, understandings of blackness and the black condition come into play. And so Gifty's mother never really saw her experience as a racist one, even though she went mm. to work every day mm-hmm. for, you know, Mr. Thomas, who was calling her out her name every day. But she could understand and see racism through her husband's experience. And so this like really subtle, mm-hmm. and this gets back to my research. You know, everything always Ooh. comes back to my research. Like this really subtle way in which like the black man's experience becomes the writ large black experience, which, mm-hmm. which becomes like, you know, she sees herself as exempt from these things for some reason, but her husband is the one that, that experiences all this violence. Um, yeah. And it's, it's like when obviously it's like, sis, like you're the one with a job. You're the one like upholding the household. You're the one that has like two to three to four jobs. Like mm-hmm. you clearly are living at a disadvantage but she, she was only able to see that through her husband. Like her husband was the most mm. disadvantaged one. And I then, wonder. oof. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say like, in regards to even thinking about her relationship with her son, mm-hmm. I just had so, oh my God. I, I, was, wanted, I wanted to think about it in, in relation to Gifty's relationship with Raymond. So mm-hmm. Raymond he is her little boyfriend. I think they said friend. that they met her little friend. <laughs> they met um, in her first year, her first year at Stanford. Yeah. And he's in the Modern Thought <laughs> program. So he's a humanities PhD student. <laughs> and she says this thing that just like, that just kills me. Let me see if I can find it quickly. So she actually doesn't really like hang out with him and his friends because they just like talk, 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 talk. Um, so that's all we do. <laughs> and, and she says, what is the point of all this talk? What problems do we solve by identifying problems, circling them? And I was like, oh, you're challenging me. I don't like it. But anyways, <laughs> I think that there was, so when they first meet, she kind of like minimizes her research. And she was like, oh, I try to get mice addicted to cocaine. And he was like, why do you do that? Why do you minimize your research? And she was like, oh, it's just, it's just easier that way. And he said, maybe you don't have to do easy with me. And I was mm. like, okay. Mm. Ha. Mm. I melted a little bit. It's the kind of yeah. thing that would just have me looking at a man like I am Bambi, just like wide eyed yes. and enamored. I, I like, mean, honestly, it's no surprise that this man Ooh. is fictional. Let's be, <laughs> let's be, <laughs> let's be real. I read that and I was like, oh. Yes, Raymond. Like, yes, yes. So so the way I read it was like, okay, on the one hand, I mean, there's two ways of interpreting it. At least that's how I saw it. There's like, our relationship is going to be hard. (laughs) There was that. Mm -hmm. But the way I read it and the way I understood it was, you don't need to shrink or minimize yourself with me. Mm. And I was just like, oh, that's what I want. I mean, I have that. <laughs> I was going to say, girl, you, you got somebody who lets you be your full self. I know. I know. Um, but, you know, in the end, like, that's exactly what she did. It was like she couldn't be her full self with this black man. And I just, it was just so confusing. It was just, it's just strange. And, and I, it's like, does it go back to 
her growing up in this like very white corner of the segregated city. I don't, I don't really understand that part. Me either. Me either. Um, I was just like, okay, there's, there's a lot to be said here about interracial romantic relationships and like how, how they can function for, for black people who are tokenized, um, in certain environments. And I don't know, I've heard people say that, you know, like, oh, being with a non-Black person, you don't have to worry about the pressures of being Black around them. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, you can just be yourself, whatever that means. And so maybe that's that's a a subtext of this because of course we never really get an explanation. Um, We never get an explanation outside of the argument they have around Gifty's lack of transparency about herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get a little bit, but it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really cycle. You, you don't really get to like really see it play out into fruition, um, at least in this book. And I just felt like, you know, the whole time I was like, Gifty girl, you need to be talking to a psychologist <laughs> girl. Like, like, girl, you, you know, actually, it, kind of, it, it makes me just, it just makes me think of the difficulty that immigrants have coming like black immigrants or I guess we can say immigrants of the African diaspora or from Africa coming here and then learning quote unquote learning that they're black mm-hmm. and and I think that it speaks to a little bit of that hesitance her being uh Jossie being like Ghanaian American and then these characters also being Ghanaian American it's just like what does my blackness have to do with anything right. I think is is kind of like one of the main questions but I have a question for you. It's related to the relationship and the relationships within this text. What did you make of the queer subtext? Girl. Because it's clearly there. I mean, it's, like, it's very subtle. I mean, it's not that subtle, but if, if you're kind of like skimming, you'll definitely miss it. But it's something that remains unnamed, right? And I, so I use this subtext because I feel like when you grow up in the church or a Jamaican immigrant family, it's the thing that shall not be named, right? Like it's tolerated as long as you don't put it in someone's face. Yo, I was low key, low key. I was like, why is Gifty not having the romantic relationships that she should have with these women in her life mm-hmm. it's like she denies herself just off the bat like denies herself any these romantic connections even though they're clearly there well with one of the women the other one is i guess more imagined but it's like why does she deny herself and maybe it is something to do with religion for me growing up in the church i didn't really see myself as queer or understand myself as queer until after I became grown more or less. Like I definitely looking back, I was like, oh yeah, definitely. But like I (laughs) had my blinders because I was taught that like that was wrong. Like you said, Mm -hmm. like I was taught it was wrong. I was taught like, no. And then now learning that so many people that I went to church with were also queer and we were also all silenced um, and not able to really find ways to to love ourselves through our religion. Um, And so a lot of us have left, but it's just like, yeah, I mean, that could be part of the reason why it's it's much more of a subtext. I wish that, honestly, I wish that, that Gifty would have 
pursued a career relationship, uh, like, and actually pursued one. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just also me being selfish. I'm like, we need more (laughs) representation out here. Uh, I mean, it also speaks to her, the inability to be whole, like, mm -hmm. as, as a result of these, like, tensions and complications that she has. Absolutely. Around who she is and where she's from and what she believes. Yeah. Yeah. I think about like, I don't, I don't know if I shared this on the podcast or not, but like somebody that I grew up with in church who was like a sister to me passed away a few weeks ago and mm-hmm. I was watching the funeral, uh, the homegoing service. That's what we say, the homegoing service on Zoom. And I just remember crying because I was like, this is probably the closest I'll ever be to this group of people who were so important to me. Mm. Um, because I refuse to to hide certain pieces of myself. Right. And I have a I have privilege in that choice that like I can do that and it not affect, you know, my day-to-day life. Like I can mm-hmm. live in my truth and it not, you know, leave me homeless or destitute and things like that. So some people don't have that choice. But yeah, I was like crying because I was like, yo, I I miss this person and I, I haven't been able to talk to them in years. And you know, now I won't be able to talk to them in this plane. So it's like, you know, that disconnect because once I realized, okay, me pursuing my truth and being in this relationship means that there are people who just, I just can't spend time with anymore, even if they were such a big part of my life before. So yeah, it's, it's a pain. There's definitely a pain around that, mm-hmm. um, a pain. And there was like, a, this is really random, but I was reading it and I don't know if you caught the part where Gifty talked about coming home to her mother with locks and her mother like Mm -hmm. giving her the silent treatment yeah and yeah she says this line holy is a black woman's hair and of course there are references in the bible about you know your hair being a crown whatever whatever Mm -hmm. but then oh oh yeah (laughs) no no like i'm just saying oh because i cut my hair like really short when years ago and my you know, my grandma was like, oh, why you do that to your hair? You know, your hair is your crown. I'm like, mm. it's not about what's on top of my head. It's about what's underneath. Mm. Mm. Ari, she was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. Oh, no. why you do that to your hair? <laughs> no, my mother literally went silent. Mm. Like, did not speak to me. Um, wow. And... So yeah, reading that was like, yo, first of all, Jossie, get up out my spot. And then <laughs> it was just like, yeah, like been there, really these parallel experiences. There were several moments in the text where I was like, oh my gosh, these are parallel experiences to my own. And thinking about my mother literally just like, my aunt cut my hair. The one who listens to the podcast, she, she <laughs> cut my relaxed ends for me. And then my mom was like silent, did not speak to me. Mm-hmm for about a day and then the next day she was like so what what are you doing with this like what's happening and even when right. I came home with Lux because now my hair is locked this summer and she was just like what are, what are you doing with this can you comb this out like it mm-hmm. so a little a step up from the silent treatment but like it's just like the subtle ways that like Eve religion even comes into hair um mm-hmm. is also something fascinating to and I think we should like think about these men in this book because I think that'll really cue us up mm-hmm. for our next session, but our next <laughs> little section. But 
Yo, this. But I, I actually, I did want to say, like, just to the the subtlety, like the subtle ways mm. that seeps its way into our lives, is like it's a question that I have for myself. Like, mm. how do you escape religion or religiosity when it's so embedded in our society and our language? And so I see her struggling with this faith, but then, but then so unable to completely avoid it. Right? It's just like it just becomes a part of you that it stays that stays embedded within you. And so I just think about like how even my everyday speech, you know, isn't really secular. You know, I say, I feel blessed or, oh my God, or, oh Lordy. I think I said it earlier in the episode. (laughs) Um, I was saying, oh Lord too. It's like these, you know, these remnants of religion, they never truly, Mm. I think. But then it's also that religion and beliefs are deeply embedded in these black diaspora cultures mm-hmm. and so i think she does a really good job jossie does a really good job of like bringing that out and, and demonstrating that to us absolutely i w- i say oh lord all the time which now <laughs> which is actually funny because when i was younger in seminary school i learned that you actually shouldn't call on god's name in vain so when you say that it's actually a sin so now i'm like sinning all over the place and i'm like oh lord but you know he 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 i'm living my <laughs> living my life now um <laughs> but the men well there's the chin chin man <sighs> who is dad daddy we're not i think we'll just that one comes late, like the what happens to him comes later on in the book so we won't we, yeah, won't, we won't spoil that for you Mm-mm. um I was actually really interested in this character of Pastor Tom. So he's a pastor at their church. um, And he's like the youth pastor. Mm -mm. And so he almost seemed to me this representation of the way religion can be this apparatus of exclusion, right? It's Mm -hmm. like to be a part of it, you must act, dress, think, speak, believe, and praise in a certain way. And so there's this, like, he was very representative of this, like, internal contradiction of religion that says we accept everyone, but there's still a caveat. And that caveat is as long as you do things the way that we do. And so how this comes up is he's, he's yeah, so he's the youth pastor and they're having their, like, children's session. Is that what it is? Yeah, like, children's church. Yeah. yeah. And so Nana says... So let's say that there's some remote town in Africa and, you know, nobody could reach them. um, So they haven't received the word of God. Are they going to hell? And Pastor Tom is like, well, of course he's going to, you know, God can reach everyone. So of course they're going to find out. And so Nana's like, well, what if they can't? And he's just like, well, then yeah, they're going to hell. And Gifty kind of reflects on this his comfort, Pastor Tom's comfort mm-hmm. with with condemning Africans and people that look like her and who, you know, are from the same place as her, condemning them to hell. And I found that I found that interesting. She's an interesting character. Yeah, I mean I grew up in a church that believed a lot of these things and so you know part of the charge was oh you it's your duty as a christian to evangelize because if you don't get these people to accept jesus into their heart they're going to die and go to hell period point blank blah (laughs) and for me growing up i had to be like okay i get it why things have to be so black and white because you know 
we have a Bible read a certain way that depicts God in a certain way. And so I get why this black and white definition of saved or not saved, hell or heaven is useful. But then I thought about like all the women in my life, all the black women in my life who did not adhere to like this definition of holiness. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yo, are they going to go to hell? Like, yeah. Like, are y'all going to go to hell? And so like, Oh no, like, is God just going to condemn all these women in my family? We had children without being married or, you know, my friend who is Muslim, like, is she automatically going to go to hell? Like, and so as a child, I was living through a lot of, a lot of that, like thinking, Mm -hmm. and then had to come to the realization that like, I don't know. I'm going to say this, but like, and you know, whatever people can respond how they want to respond. But yeah, come realization that like hell is not a real place, or at least I don't believe that hell is mm-hmm. a real place. Um, and it, and if it is a real place, then I'm living a life that's going to make me be there. So, mm-hmm. and you know, if me and all my homegirls, we going to be sitting, we, we have a joke, actually. <laughs> my roommate and I have a joke about us being in the VIP section of hell and like, <laughs> Where all the black queers, all the black <laughs> queers are, are partying in the VIP section. And, and you know, because I also had to come to the realization. I was like, yo, if Ronald Reagan is in heaven mm. and like, <laughs> is that a place I want to be? But right. it's also, you know, well, not here nor there. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's not I'm, yeah, there. I don't know. I don't know where my thoughts are on on heaven and hell. I mean, I've told you, like, I just made this up. So y'all don't, don't jump on me on this, but I'm like religion neutral. So I'm not, I don't believe, I don't disbelieve. I just kind of let people be. And I live my life in accordance to what results in the least harm Mm -hmm. for others, I think is probably the, the best way of putting it or do what you need to do as long as you're not hurting other people. And that's kind of where I'm at. And I like to help people. I think I'm just a naturally good person. (laughs) But so what, you know, which men in this, in this book did you find particularly compelling? Well, maybe, maybe not, not men alone. I would say always men in in relationship to someone else. Mm. So like Nana, mom, that relationship where, you know, she he's a miracle child that's the apple of her eye that's her heart gifty comes along she's like yo what the fuck and then (laughs) i what the fuck but then of course he did and so there are certain ways where you notice right the differences in how they're raised of course now not as much older than gifty and things like that but it's just like i don't i in the book she calls it edipal i oh i just the idea of edipal I think so. She, I think mm. she calls it edible or maybe that was just me reading that and being like, this is an edible relationship. But yeah, just cause like, we know how you love your psychoanalytics girl. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Uh, so it's just <laughs> it's like, I think about black mothers who raise their sons with very much different standards than their daughters. And then be looking confused when their sons have different outcomes than their daughters. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, yo, why are you confused when you basically made your daughter raise herself 
essentially and help you raise this son um Mm -hmm. and this son was babied and just like the patience that he was given that gifty was not shown and just all these Mm -hmm. all these different things just made me reflect on what i've witnessed in relationships between mothers and sons and then also that made me think about like on a more intellectual level like scholarship especially scholarship that centers like black movements or even modern media discourse about black movies that mm-hmm. kind of focus on these mothers who are mourning sons. It's like losing yeah. a son is this ultimate loss. And that really kind of overshadows all of these mothers who've lost their daughters for a multitude of reasons. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it's just like, so, so fascinating to me because Nana essentially, I mean, he dies, obviously that they tell you that from jump, but it's just like, Gifty is left to pick up the pieces and yeah. like help, like help do this work that she was already doing as a child of like bringing mm-hmm. her family together. And so throughout the book, there's this theme that you know she's she's working on addiction pathways in the brain and mm-hmm. mice, right? And this is her her research, and she always says that it's not about her brother, and that she's you know she's trying to understand something else, but it's not it's not about like thinking about how she could have saved him, which is also interesting. You know, there's yeah. there's this kind of uh, pressure put on Black girls and Black sisters mm. to to save their Black male family members as yep. well. But, so I think that in a way it, it is still about him, even though Gifty is always saying it's not about him, it's not about him. I think that she's she's trying to understand this dynamic, right? This dynamic of like, why him and not her when they share this DNA? Mm. And so I've heard this explained really, really well. You know, if you have you have two people who are two siblings, they've had the same experience, the same parents. You know, why is it that one can turn out really well and another person, another one will die of an overdose, right? And so I heard it explained as like, you think of each sibling as a glass and you drop both the glasses. One crumbles, and the other one turns into a sharp weapon. So Mm. we just all break differently. Mm. And I don't think that that can necessarily be explained by just the brain. And she struggles with that throughout the book. You know, she has a difficult time, like, reconciling not... She has a difficult time reconciling the heart, the mind, and the soul. Mm. So the brain and um, the soul and the way that we feel about things. She's just like, how, how do I bring all of these together to understand what happened to my brother and why it's different from how I've turned out? Yeah, and understand it outside of this kind of blasé uh, Christian, it was God's plan, mm. right? Like this, that's what they say at the funeral, right? Yeah, like, and it's like, you know, why would I want to serve a God who destined me to lose someone in this way? You know, um, mm-hmm. also one of the questions I had growing up as a child um, and now understanding loss as loss and not and not feeling the need to like recuperate it as some part of some sadistic master plan um, mm-hmm. to make me a better person, which is also just, I don't know, that that whole theology confuses me. Um, how you have to suffer to go through to be a better person. I'm like, this is abuse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and like, 
you know, wow. we don't have we don't have to think about God as abusive, right? God could Yeah. We can leave God out of it and just be like, Oh, this world is just a fucked up place. Um but ooh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, there was, this is going to be the last thing because we've got to move on to the next segment. Yeah, obviously we have, we just, we really <laughs> enjoyed reading this book. <laughs> I did. I mean, I'm going to say that I would rate the book a three and a half out of five because I was just like waiting for there to be some kind of climax, but it's really, I was just like, it needs to be building up to something. Is it building up to something? And then it just kind of like ends. And then like you, I was very disappointed by the way that it ended, I was just kind of like, eh. and I found this with um, Yajasi's last book with Homegoing is it was just like, this is so good. It's building up to something. It's building up to something. And then the ending, it kind of just like peters out. And I was a little bit like, oh, but there's this one scene uh, where they're getting Nana into the car after he's been missing. And so it's around lunchtime. They're in a business district downtown and so people are just like sipping lattes and eating lunch in the area and they're struggling to get him in the car. These, you know, this little girl and an older woman. And so she writes, we were three black people in distress, nothing to see. Mm. All of these people just keep mm. going on about their life because as you talk about in your, in your research, there's an eligibility to black suffering. Yeah. And she... I mean, when she talks about like people at her church being like, oh, you know how they are prone mm-hmm. to getting addicted to drugs. And mm-hmm. and so, yeah, there's there's these understandings of blackness as always being uh, as a state of crisis. Right. So like, oh, black people in distress, it's just that's, mm-hmm. you know, everyday life for them kind of thing. But then also not seeing black women in particular, I, th- I do think that something about the image, right. Of just mm-hmm. a black woman and a black girl uplifting this black man. Mm-hmm. And that kind of being seen as like how it's normal. Be. Yeah. Right. Like, oh. they, they, like that's like how it should be. And so it's kind of just like, because I'm like, I can't imagine if two black men came and picked this black man up off the ground and try to drag him out people not at least being intrigued or wanting to know like what's happening here. But the fact that it's like a black woman and a black girl mm-hmm. trying to drag this very large black man. Cause he's just, he's tall. Like it's a spectacle for sure. But like this, the, just the, like how it's normalized and the way she writes about it, it's just kind of like people are just like, Oh, I'm going to yeah. sit my latte and eat my lunch. Um, but then also like, I don't know. I just kept thinking like, yo, if gifty was out here, you know, dealing with this type of illness and addiction, would her mother be circling the block for her? And it's mm. obviously no, mm. like obviously not. Um, just so, so thrilled, so thrilled. But I feel like we should talk about why we even talked about this. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, um, <laughs> no. Okay. So y'all, this is our first time talking about a whole book. So usually an article or we do an excerpt of something. So this is the first time talking about a whole book. So it was a lot. We actually didn't even get through all of the things that we wanted to talk about. But in that sense, as you said, as you started this out, it was, it was provocative. It's been generative. Um, So even if my semi low review, (laughs) Even if my review is, you know, a little wishy-washy, I definitely think that it is um, a book that 
I would give to a family member to provoke conversation Mm -hmm. um, and discussion. And just, you know, I think that it's really good for that because part of the reason Jossie wrote this book is because there isn't or there wasn't anything out there like it before that really resonated with her. And I think that's where some of the best art comes from Mm. is from wanting something yourself and then going out and making it and doing it. Um, And I think seeing how it's like resonated with you and it's given me a lot to think about uh, some with some of the religion stuff, but also there's like a lot of the um, PhD stuff conversations (laughs) around like around the (laughs) seminar tables and um, things and just like thinking about myself and and my ambition and my goals and, and things like that. So there's a lot here. And she deals with a lot of these very challenging issues. And so the reason that I only give it a three and a half is because some of these issues get short shrift. And I think that I want to say that there was more maturity needed in her writing, you know, more like, I don't know, I'm not sure how to say it, more like perspective or life experience to really make some of these things come to life. Right. Because it's, because these, these subjects are complex, every single one of them, right? Mm-hmm. Science versus God, mother-daughter relationships, and, you know, all of these different tensions, I think they're complex and important, but it kind of was just this story about Gifty and her life. That kind of ends with a little cute little bow on it. Um, yeah, which, what was up with that? Anyways, y'all, if y'all <laughs> read it, let us know what you think because please, <laughs> about please. that ending. But we are going to move on to Brendan. What in the world? What in the world? Like, what? Uh. What? So, in our last episode, if you were like, okay, who in the hell is this (laughs) nigga that Brendan keeps talking about? We are going to talk about him today. So his name, or whatever he calls himself, is Apostle Wise Preach. That's Wise Preach, one word. Y'all, I'm 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 dead. Okay. So so he's a Leo, which it really means loud and wrong. Um. Oh, oh, but so he was born in Kenya, grew up a pastor's kid, but didn't really feel called to the Lord until he fell out of a bunk bed and he was quote, supernaturally rotated in his sleep so that he could avoid head injury. And he also went through nine months of demonic warfare, during which time he could not eat or drink. Mm -hmm. So the post that we are referring to in that last episode was one that quickly went viral and has since been deleted. But since the internets are forever, here's what he wrote. I am looking for a Proverbs 31 wife who must meet this criteria. Oh my God. One, the woman must be Christ-centered. Two, absolutely gorgeous. Three, Mm. can sing. Mm. Four, light skin (laughs) with a stunning smile. (laughs) With a stunning smile. Five, between the ages 22 and 27. Six, absolutely no kids. Seven, loves Jesus more than anything else. Eight, can cook and is tidy. Nine, 
and intercessor. 10, is between five feet and five foot four. 11, never been married before. 12, submitted and a great listener. 13, hospitable and loves Jesus Christ more than me. And then this entire list, it ends with, do you have what it takes to marry a prophet? Hell no. Girl, where do we start? Where do we start with this call for proposals? Where do we start with this reality TV series? Letters of inquiry. Um, (laughs) Yo, okay. So, I think I'm going (laughs) to... Absolutely gorgeous. It's definitely connected to light skin with a stunning smile. Okay. His, he views, you know, light skin is gorgeous. Got it. And of course, between five foot to five, four, like, okay, that's me. You know, I, I, I see what you, what he was trying to do with that one. Like get you a short, get you a short one. I heard you. I'm pretty sure I said maybe. So there's a picture of him sitting on a bench, but he's, he's sitting he's sitting on the top of the bench with his feet on the seat part. And I was just like, he's short, bro. You need to you need to marry whoever helped you get up on that bench because she must be the one. <laughs> that ladder from Target. Um, <laughs> is the one. Um, the the one that really, at least initially, as I'm going through and thinking through this. Between the ages of 22 and 27, I am 27. I am remembering myself at 22. I was a completely different person. Mm-hmm. Also, how old is he? I don't know. He, he probably is on his, his website. He only has August 3rd as his birthday. He's in his 30s. Oh my gosh, that's his my hairline was birthday. disappearing. His hairline was. Sl- disappearing it was slipping away it and you know what's gonna okay so let me tell away to jesus let me tell our listeners who don't know what it's like to be on these internets as black women we're talking about this black man and all of this criteria that he has set out <laughs> a lot of which is ridiculous and you know what men are going to come to us with you know what they're going to step to us with why is it that you can go and talk about this man how he was doing all of this stuff that was so rude, but then you're going to make fun of men who are short and have no hairlines. You see, women, you guys, oh, women are just, you're so demanding. Sweetie, <laughs> the one the one thing I will always bring to the table is a hairline. This shit ain't going nowhere. <laughs> so, like, if, if I'm going to say something to you, it's going to be about that. One, two, like, there's nothing here about her intelligence Mm-hmm. Nothing here about other qualities that she could bring to the table. She just needs to be able to cook, clean, pray, be short, ain't never, ever, 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 ever had no kids. He didn't say she needed to be a virgin, though, so. Uh, uh, uh. So she do, so between the subtitles of all this, so she can't be no hoe, right, quote unquote. Which I watched a beautiful presentation about that last night. But you can't be no hoe with kids, uh, no divorced hoe with kids. But she got to know what she's doing, right? So that 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 mm-hmm. is that's in the background of all of this. On top of mm-hmm. being light skinned and between the ages of a child and almost an adult, and um, <laughs> like, uh, what, what, sir? Um. So that was just, ah, 
That one really, it brought up some questions. And so I'm in this group and I've talked about it on this podcast before and I didn't want to give the name, but I'm in the group and that was where I first found it. And just the comments from the women were just like, this man is ridiculous. And then all of the men were getting upset about it. And they're like, oh, what men, we're not allowed to have standards now. We're not allowed to have standards. So you all can say you want a man who has money, is tall, has a hairline, has a job, and no kids, and that's okay for you. But when men do the same thing, it's misogyny. (laughs) I want a man who could pay bills. I mean, tall. Okay, I'm going to say this. As someone who has dated tall men and short men in a past life, tall men don't have the same complexes about themselves and like they don't because because masculinity okay we're going to get into it like gender as a form of looking through the world and like you know you proceed to be more masculine the taller you are this goes for Mm -hmm. people who are men and people who are women right so like there's a certain assuredness in their masculinity as they get taller because i feel like short men feel like they have to compensate sometimes um and sometimes they do that through Mm -hmm. misogynist violence Mm -hmm. and so we see this evidenced in his standards right which is like you know women are asking for someone to help them maintain a household he's asking for someone to do that but it it but like what does her skin complexion have to do with with any of these yeah, he's looking for someone to bring him to salvation or to like contribute to his arrival at salvation. Which is just like when you see all of these other scandals and things about these big name preachers who have mistresses and baby mamas mm-hmm. and they all talk about how their wives built them up or like mm-hmm. how their wives are the center of their world and they just have to tackle these lust demons or whatever within them. But then it also becomes the other woman's fault. Like, Oh, she persuaded me or God sent, I mean, mm-hmm. not God, the devil sent her to like get me off track. And it's like, no, like you were attracted to this woman for whatever <laughs> reason you abused your position of power, most likely to lure her into a sexual relationship. You got caught Cause your wife is over here cooking, cleaning, being light skin, stunning her with a stunning smile, hospitable, loving Jesus, and you out here doing whatever. And so it's just like, yo, like the misogyny that's inherent in these expectations around partners. Yeah, that is like pro- like it's just propagated in the in the church. It's just so harmful. Like it's so harmful. It's so harmful. Yeah, and I think that something that's really interesting or actually is really problematic is that it's always the woman's responsibility Mm -hmm. to keep the man from stumbling, right? Yeah, that's Adam and Eve. mm -hmm. Like that's literally, the Bible comes right out the gate and it's like, even though men are supposed to be the holy ones, they're supposed to be the leaders, they're the one that you're supposed to submit to. Oh, God. And that's now a whole a whole <laughs> internet conversation. Well, let me tell you, uh, da- you know, dating a Christian, I've had to come to my own. <laughs> as soon as you say come to my own in terms of like religious stuff, people are just mm-hmm. like, oh, you're a heretic, aren't you? <laughs> 
But um, he's not, okay. Let me just point out that he's never said I'm looking for a woman who is submissive or whatever. But you know, I think all of these things are part of it. The whole like you know leaving cleave and being equally yoked and things mm-hmm. like that. So I've Damn. I consider them and I take I, you know I think about them and I'm just like all right. One of my friends was like, "How are you going to reconcile submission?" And I was just like, "All right, let me be this word nerd." And I was like, "What does sub mean?" It means under. What's mission? It's a task, a goal. It's something that you're trying to get to, trying to achieve. So to me, submission means that both of us mm. are under the mm. same mission, mm. that we are working towards the same mission. So it does mm-hmm. not mean <laughs> that I am the one who is submissive. It means both of us are under the same mission, working towards the same goals in life. And that is how I'm reconciling this. You see, being a word nerd. <laughs> I see. I mean, I like that little dance you had going. My thing is <laughs> the mission, though, like who sets the mission of the house? Both of us. Right. But I mean, maybe. But <laughs> is, is it really both or is it really you being like, actually, here's what I would like to see happen. Let's agree that what I would like to see happen can happen. Maybe I'm speaking for myself. Let me speak from the eye. Let's agree that what I <laughs> would like to see happen can happen. Um, and if you have some suggestions, please let me know. But like this is about, you know, me running this household, us being in this household together. Mm-hmm. At least that's like how it felt when I was um, in relationships with like cis men. It's like, I'm definitely in charge here. And you... Because you see me as, like, mother 2.0. So, like, mm. I'm definitely in charge here. I'm the one setting the vision for this relationship. I'm the one driving, you know, as we move from stage to stage. I'm the one, like, you know, this is the color sheets we should have. And this is, like, mm-hmm. when we're going to wash clothes. And so all these, you know, all these little forms of labor that are feminized and then deemed lesser. But it's really, like, you know, if if... I stop making these decisions, we really stop functioning as like a mm-hmm. couple and as like a household. So it's just so the myth around like leadership and God pointing to men and saying, you are the leaders of the home. I just believe it to be mm-hmm. a myth. And I know somebody's, you know, somebody's mama, church mama's going to have, going to have something to say. <laughs> but. Yeah. No. Yeah. There's, we're mm-hmm. both the leaders. That's how I look at it anyways. Oof, we are running long. Yeah, we just wanted to, um, like, take this so, last little bit to acknowledge acknowledge mm-hmm. church hurt. And Brendan is going to take us away with the final closing sermon. <laughs> closing sermon, LOL. As someone who has been hurt in the church, as particularly along the lines of, like, gendered violence, sustained over really the majority of my childhood, in, from the gamut of, like, having someone, a grown man, stalk me at church because he believed in his mind that God destined for us to be together down to just, again, people telling me that I was possessed and being ostracized because of um, that possession or or just the fear, the guilt, the shame, this kind of hyper-focus on sin, but certain types of sin, purity culture, Uh, If you are there or have been there, like, just know I've been there with you and healing comes and it's a process. And there are days when you feel like you've come above it. And there are days when like literally 
you feel the pain again. And so just know that things don't necessarily get easier, but that the process does does become easier and does better. And you learn how to just move through it and process it and understand it. And if you choose to still believe in the church and believe in God, like know that God did not destine that for you, that this was people projecting their own insecurities onto you. Um, And if you're like me and you've chosen to just turn away from that particular set of beliefs, then you find healing and wholeness in yourself. And I applaud you for that. I applaud you for whatever you choose to do. Thank you so much, Brendan. And I'm sorry that happened to you. And we just wanted to know that we here see you all and affirm that your experiences are your experiences and that it was not you, it's not your fault. And there is a way forward. So thank you for that, Brendan. That was lovely. And thank you all for listening, making it through this episode. So I heard recently that you can really only get one wish from people. And so you've pretty much already done that by making it all the way to the end of this episode. So if I could get one more wish this week, it would just be that you leave a comment on our Instagram post because you know them algorithms be playing us. Yes, absolutely. Um, So you can find us if you're wondering. You can find us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram. And if you'd like to read transcripts for the episodes, our bios, or to just get in touch with us, please head to ZorasDaughters.com. And, you know, we really got that brand ownership on lock, don't we? That, <laughs> that we most certainly do. So until next time, we all must take care of ourselves and each other. So see you soon. Talk to you soon. I need to stop laughing. <laughs> this might have to go in the bloopers at the end no us cracking up god's bless like yes (laughs) okay um so so i was looking through the oxford Yo, we can't even, can't even do it. Can't even move forward. <laughs> I just have this image of God, like, with some yeah. headphones on in the booth, like. <laughs> Putting out an album. <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> okay, hang on. Let me just blow my nose. yo (sighs) pull yourself together woman you know she says that in the book I'm going to talk about it I liked that section Mm -hmm. and she says pull yourself together okay anyhow (laughs) 